welcome to the Psychology of Successful Women podcast, where we explore the mindset, behavior, and success strategies of high-achieving women. It's an inspirational show that helps ambitious women to maximize their performance from the inside out and thrive in the world of business. I'm your host, Shona Rowan, high-performance coach, inspirational speaker, and author of the book, The Psychology of Successful Women. On this month's episode of the podcast, I had a really inspiring conversation with Harriet Johnson. Harriet is a barrister at Dowdy Street Chambers in London, specialising in human rights and criminal law, and a fierce advocate of women's rights. She is a founder member of Women in Criminal Law, joint chair of trustees of the charity Women in Prison, and in 2016, she founded Dowdy Street Women Events, an annual series of conferences to consider what more the law can do for women. Harriet has given keynote legal addresses around the world, as well as speaking in the media about law and justice, particularly through the lens of gender. Her first book, Enough, The Violence Against Women and How to End It, was published by William Collins in April 2022. We had a really powerful conversation about her inspirational career and her non-traditional path to becoming a barrister. Her huge passion for supporting, protecting and defending women through the work that she does. What inspired her to write her amazing book? Things like imposter syndrome, saying no, boundaries, bouncing back from setbacks, and so much more. So Harriet, welcome to the Psychology of Successful Women podcast. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So to start our conversation, could you tell our listeners about your career journey? all leading up to your current role as a barrister at Dowdy Street Chambers in London, specialising in human rights and criminal law. Well, I um, am a bit unusual, I think, amongst barristers in that I didn't start out wanting to be a barrister. I did a degree in philosophy and political science at Trinity College in Dublin, um, which I think most people will tell you is not a degree you do (laughs) if you have an actual plan to have a real job. Um, (laughs) Halfway through, uh, I was working in a pub and um in, in in one of my summers and uh one of the locals was a barrister and he and I would always have big arguments about politics and one day I asked him what it was like to be a barrister and he said well why don't you come and find out so I I shadowed his uh colleague in fact uh doing a, a fairly straightforward um criminal trial nearby and I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it. And that was the first time that I, the first time I'd met a barrister, first time I'd spoken to one and had a chance to understand what the job was actually about. And I think like many people before that, when I imagined barristers, I imagined a lot of very stuffy, very old, very conservative white men um, using Latin and arguing about stuff that most people didn't care about or understand. And mm-hmm. The more I found out about the profession, the more I realised how wrong I was and how, um, as well as <laughs> as well as perhaps that legacy, uh, while that negative side of the legacy is dying out, it's being replaced by um, people who want to use the law as a tool to do good things and to achieve um, some fairness and some balance in a world that can otherwise lack it. And so that's how I ended up thinking maybe maybe the bar could be a place for somebody like me and maybe um, it could be something that I could use to try to try to make things a bit fairer mm. for people. So I um, I did a law conversion course afterwards after my uh, undergrad degree and set about the 
arduous and exhausting process of applying for pupillage, which is what the the year long training process um, to become a barrister is called here in the UK. It's notoriously difficult to get and um, it's notoriously exhausting when you do it. And I do think it's one of the parts of our profession that needs to change because we we run the risk of people being burnt out after a year. And that's not really a very good start to a sustainable Mm. career. Um, But one of the you know, one of the themes certainly that I've heard um, in the episodes of your podcast that I've listened to um, with successful women, which has been really reassuring to me, is the prevalence of imposter syndrome, because Mm. my imposter syndrome is so bad that I think I'm the only woman that has it. And uh, (laughs) and, um, yeah, my my dad likes to remind me whenever I'm um, whenever I'm voicing imposter syndrome, my dad likes to remind me of the fact that when I was first applying for pupillage, I didn't apply to Doughty Street because you have a limited number of applications you can make. And I thought I'd never get in. So I thought it was a wasted application. And then, you know, did pupillage somewhere else um, and ended up sort of looking for looking for a home where I could feel like like the chambers I was in reflected my values and the sort of work I wanted to be doing and saw an advert at Doughty Street came and applied and 10 minutes after the interview they offered me the job um oh wow just the loveliest feeling in the world but also something my dad likes to remind me of that you know this place I thought would never have me in a million years offered me a job 10 minutes after I interviewed there so so it's a useful reminder when it comes to imposter syndrome that things aren't always as out of reach as they might seem Mm. Oh, well, I love hearing that about your story. And I liked also knowing that you're, you know, that non-linear sort of path into what you're doing now. Now, building on that, you act in cases involving some of the most serious allegations of criminal and civil wrongdoing, often challenging discrimination in the justice system around male violence against women and girls. Could you tell our listeners some more about the sorts of work that you're involved in? Mm. So, um, the the if there's a theme running through my practice I think it probably is um women and mm-hmm. trying to support and protect women in a system that doesn't always do as good a job of that as I think it could do um so the criminal side of that is in my criminal cases I'm very often defending women who have themselves been victims of male violence or male control and then end up in a situation where they themselves are being prosecuted for crimes so um one of the one of the um one of the discrepancies i think one of the inconsistencies in um english and welsh law is that the law now recognizes coercive control as a specific crime so um amongst the under the umbrella of crimes against women and you know it's important to say at the outset also crimes that affect men it's really important to acknowledge that but statistically overwhelmingly it is women who are victims of these crimes Um, The law now recognises that domestic abuse doesn't have to be physically violent for Mm. it to be um, hugely damaging to the point where it amounts to a crime. So coercive control has now been recognised as a crime by the government. The the inconsistency and the incongruity is that it's it's a crime to do it, but it's not a defence for a woman who commits a crime as a result of coercive control to say Mm. I was in a coercive and controlling relationship. Um, the law does allow uh, the defensive duress, but that's so, so narrow um, that it's it's almost never available. And 
what what I and and other people, um, so people like the Centre for Women's Justice, um, are campaigning for is a change to the law to allow that defence to be extended uh, to to women who are victims of coercive control to recognise what the law already recognises, which is that if you're in a coercive and controlling relationship, um, that your ability to have any say over your own conduct is reduced um, and that that ought to be reflected in the law. Not saying for a moment that women don't have um, have agency over their own lives, but it's important to recognise that in the cases where people are subject to coercion and control, that agency is reduced. And I think it's really important for the law to reflect that, which I think it doesn't at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the the criminal side of of the law that I'm involved in. And, you know, that includes defending women who have um, attacked or, or killed violent partners, violent husbands. Um, the civil side of my practice is centred on bringing actions against public bodies. So very often the police or sometimes local authorities or other branches of the government who have failed women um, who needed their help. So um, unfortunately, the most common one that I deal with is women who go to the police to report their rape or serious sexual violence being perpetrated against them and their their complaint being written off for lack of evidence or for them not being believed um, or unfortunately because the investigation isn't conducted properly and uh, key evidence is lost or misread, um, meaning that that the state hasn't discharged its duty to to protect that woman. Um, and unfortunately, because for policy reasons, it's very difficult to to sue the police for negligence. Um, our only our only way of bringing any redress is actually technically under the Human Rights Act um, to say, you know, this woman has a right not to be subjected to degrading or or torturous treatment and that right extends to um a right to have it properly investigated when she is so that's the that's the way in um i hope i haven't immediately got too uh technical and legal there but that's um, that's that's the way that the way that we we get it through um the law to essentially find these agencies because that's all we can do but equally that's um that's one of the only uh, actions that they seem to respond to is financial penalty rather than mm. things like public pressure um, or the complaints procedure, I think, in my experience, are very often less effective than bringing an action against them. Wow. Well, a lot of the people listening in are hugely passionate about empowering women, gender equality, you know, all the things you're talking about. I know so many of our listeners are going to be so interested to know more, Harriet, which leads probably nicely to my next question, which was, you know, everyone wants to know about you and you've written this amazing book um, that I've been reading and highly recommend. So tell our listeners about your brilliant work, which links into all the work that you're talking about there. And it's called Enough, The Violence Against Women and How to End It. So tell us about it and what inspired you to write it. Um, so it's coming back to imposter syndrome. This is um, another way in which it manifested itself. So I um I I occasionally do some media work and um, usually when there's a a question of violence against women that's that's high profile and in the news, I'm very often asked to go on television or on the radio to talk about the legal aspect of it. And um, that that happened in the aftermath of the disappearance and um, it was later revealed rape and murder of Sarah Everard. 
um, I went on Newsnight, amongst other things, to talk about violence against women and police responses to it. Um, and unbeknownst to me, there was a woman um, watching from HarperCollins uh, called Joe, who was sort of thinking about this and emailed me a few months later and said, I think somebody needs to write a book about this and I think it needs to be you. And I, um, talking about imposter syndrome, one of the, you know, one of the huge privileges about being at Doughty Street Chambers is you are surrounded by these amazing, game-changing, you know, once-in-a-generation lawyers and once-in-a-generation minds. But it can give you a huge inferiority complex because you're suddenly you're being graded on an insane curve and you think you're you're failing because you haven't been knighted by the time you're 30, which is just <laughs> insane. But you know, when you're surrounded by these amazing people, that can be one of the one of the mm. um side effects of it. So when I first got this email, so there are some amazing, amazing women in my chambers. So uh Jennifer Robinson, um Kaney Yoshida, Dr. Kaney Yoshida, I should say, Helena Kennedy, Amal Cooney. These women are all in my chambers and they're all incredible doing amazing work. And when I first got this email, I thought to myself, well, I must be the only contact she's got at Doughty Street. and She must be emailing me because she wants me to ask one of these women to write this book. And I honestly, sincerely, I've read the email three or four times before I realised she was actually talking to me and asking me. Mm-hmm. And um, then very uncoolly emailed her back two minutes later and said, yes, I want to do this immediately. Yes. Um and we ended up chatting for an hour, sort of a few minutes later, talking about the intricacies of it. And it became very clear to me that this was a book that was already in my head and I just needed just needed to let it out, actually. But um was a thought that would never have occurred to me if somebody hadn't said to me, I'm from a publisher and I think you should do this, um, mm. which, again, is perhaps a way in which I was maybe selling myself short. But um, yeah, it all happened very quickly in the end because they they wanted to have published it yesterday um so we we were on quite a time quite a tight time scale um and I, I say it was all in my head ready to come out I I thought that I knew everything there was to know in this field because it's my profession I work with it on a daily basis and I thought I knew all of the statistics um but when we started getting into the actual stats I had this amazing um young woman who's now training to be a barrister called Josie Fathers who helped me with some of the research because I was also finishing up work on a major public inquiry at the time um and she and I kept saying well, well you know I said to her right at the beginning I really want this book to include marginalized women because very often when we see statistics about women and especially about violence against women there's no further breakdown we're just talking about women in general and that fails to acknowledge that some women have wealth and power and status and um, every advantage apart from that of their gender and other women have no wealth and no power and no status and are otherwise marginalized so it was really important to me that we included marginalized women so um women of color especially black women uh disabled women homeless women um women from so-called poorer socioeconomic backgrounds um it was really important to me that we included those women and one of the things that was so mind-boggling and so frustrating about the research is that when you look at the data these women just aren't included they're not uh the when we when we look at the data about violence against women 
there's no breakdown to include um, or specifically highlight what the data is when it comes to marginalised women. And when the data is there, it shows that uh, marginalised women have a much, much harder time than women who aren't marginalised. But most of the time it's not even there. So I think I've, I've said in the book about how we use the phrase just another statistic to talk about people who are written off. But actually, for so many of these women, they're not even given the dignity of being a statistic. And that's a Mm. huge problem that really shocked me when I came to write the book, actually. Well, your book is extremely powerful. I highly recommend everybody reads it. So many people dialing into this episode, I'm sure, would, would love to learn from it. You're such a fierce advocate for women's rights. And that shines through in everything that you do and everything that you're saying. And I'm so passionate about this. So many of our listeners are. So yeah, please go out and and, and buy that book. Now, linking on, I'm going to get to imposter syndrome in a minute. I'm going to hold that card because you've mentioned it a few times. And it's (laughs) it's such a common thing. And I can relate to that in so many ways, so many of the things you said. And when I wrote my book, it was a similar, you know, who am I and what have I got to offer? And even though I've been talking about this for 15, 20 years, you have all those doubts come up. So I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, But one of my biggest goals and intentions with the work I do, and obviously this led to our connection, um, is helping other women. You know, I'm passionate as a speaker and coach in terms of helping other women build a successful and fulfilling career on their own terms, whatever success looks like to them, right, because it's different for everybody. So I would love to know, what does success mean to you, Harriet, at this point in your career? It's really interesting. Uh, the timing of this podcast recording is really, really interesting because I've been thinking a lot about that over the last um, month or so, particularly because I've been I've been sort of doing some some adjustments, I suppose, in how I conduct my career. And the major challenge I have at the moment is saying no to things. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly because like most barristers, I'm technically self-employed. So I'm a part of a chambers where we we share costs and um, we refer work to each other, but we're all in my chambers technically self-employed. So you're to a greater or lesser degree responsible for your own career progression and career development. So from day one, I've had a very, um, I suppose, a very strong desire to say yes to everything because there is always that fear when you're self-employed that um, if you say no to this, that client might not come back. Uh, Work might dry up tomorrow. What happens if this time next year I've got no work and it's all my fault because I said no to this last year, Mm. which never happens. Of course it never happens, but that's, that's the fear. And especially when you first start out, that's the fear. But now I've been doing this job for 12 years and I've been sort of thinking about how maybe it might be time to start saying no to some things. Whereas in the past, the only reason I would say no was if I had so little capacity that I was already working 16 or 17 hours a day. And that's not a sustainable way to uh, to have a career. And that's, um, you know, that's got burnout written all over it. So now I'm trying to adjust that, um, my own definition of success. And I think for me, it looks more like um, still doing the cases that are really, really important to me, Um, but also having some help, which is also another way of putting it, is to involve other women in this work. Um, So I've been focusing on bringing in uh, more junior women from my chambers who are interested in doing this work, helping them to sort of get a foothold in this sort of work, but also helping myself to um, to not have to do every single tiny thing myself. So practicing that ability to delegate a little bit, 
so that I can really be at my best for the cases I'm doing, but also so that I can enjoy other parts of my life. Because as you so rightly said, success isn't just about work. It's about everything in your life. And you could Mm. have the most quote unquote successful career in the world. But if that's all you do, then that's not a very well balanced life. And um, so for me, you know, I have this beautiful home that we moved into not to brag that feels very braggy um but but we worked so hard to get to the point where we could have this little house in the countryside and uh two well yeah about a year and a half ago we moved into this beautiful little house in the countryside with a garden and apple trees and we got a dog and and all of those things you know having time to Mm. you know grow vegetables which makes me sound like a granny but I genuinely know it's amazing Um, and you know having time to spend with the dog and to read books that aren't about work and all of these things that I loved doing before I was a barrister um, I I put so much work into creating the conditions to do that but I still wasn't actually allowing myself the time to do that Mm. so one of the focuses for the last month or so for me has been getting into the practice of saying no to work um, and saying still saying yes to the work that I really want to do but not saying yes to absolutely everything indiscriminately and recognizing that as uncomfortable as that feels the benefit of it is that I get to you know pick the apples and play with the dog and grow the vegetables and have the country walks with my husband and do all of these things that are really important to me as a human being rather than just focusing on me as a barrister and what I can do to help other people all the time there's a um uh in fact when we Steve my husband and I were talking about it um I said and I I'm this is an analogy that I I happened upon by mistake but I'm becoming very fond of it is that there's a reason why when you go to donate blood they only let you give you they only let you give one pint at a time and um, I keep reminding myself of that every time I'm saying no to a case and feeling uncomfortable about it, that actually, you know, if I give six pints of blood, um, that might help six people, but it's I'm not going to be able to generate any more. And actually, it's about trying to help people in a sustainable way that means that I'm not burning out and that I'm not sort of actively making myself miserable to try and do it. <laughs> So much of what you said then, Harriet, resonates with me personally as a business owner and I talk about it with so many of my clients. No, but, you know, so many women, you know, which all these things we're talking about, people that are passionate about helping other women, supporting other women, we want to be all things and do, you know, we don't want to miss opportunities and that sense of saying no to things exactly like you, like being self-employed, that's what I am. And for years it's hard and you you grapple with it. But, yeah, I'm teaching myself like Shona, just like you said then, you can't do it all. And at what cost, right? You have to you have exactly. to find a balance. And there's nothing wrong with saying no sometimes. And it's okay to be selective. And I know so many women listening in that feed around support and delegation as well. And and yeah, like I like how you said sort of checking in with what success means to you now, you know, so you can have a great lifestyle as well. So so many great tips in there that you shared. Now, linked into that, you're in, and you know, in your line of work and during your career, you must come across setbacks and have been through setbacks and difficulties and had to build your own resilience. It's something mm. I'm asked about a lot as a performance coach I've had to deal with in my own career and my own business. So I'd really like to know what are some of your personal strategies or suggestions for our listeners around dealing with setbacks and challenges? So it's, yeah, I was thinking a lot about this one. It's it's a difficult one because there are times when 
I'm very much a sort of lick my wounds sort of woman. And there are times when I am very much a go home, listen to some angry rap and come back fighting the next <laughs> day woman. And I think, I think we I all have that. both of those women inside of us. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think you know, I think we all have those both those women inside of us and it's really important mm. to acknowledge both of those things and um you know I oh I'm very bad at taking criticism I you know I on the face of it I will deal with it well and say that's really helpful thank you so much um but then I will go home you know lock myself in my office and convince myself that I'm actually terrible at all things all the time um, and I have, you know, I have half an hour of that before I sort of pull myself out. And um, so, I, you know, the, the nature of the work that I do, um, because so often it's very, very distressing and details mm. of it are really distressing, mean that I, I quite often see a counsellor to sort of talk through that and deal with the secondary trauma that can often come out of it. Mm. Um, but this lovely, brilliant counsellor I see called Roz has a phrase where I will say to her, you know, and and then this terrible thing will happen and then probably we'll all die. And, um, and she but she has a phrase where she says, OK, so that's the black and white. What's the grey? And I found myself I saying like that, that to myself in my mm. everyday life. Well, OK, that's the black and white. What's the grey? And uh, <laughs> so for me, after you know when dealing with a setback or a difficulty I'll I'll have half an hour of thinking well this is terrible clearly my career is over and I've finally been exposed as the failure that I always knew I was and then and then I'll think okay well that's the black and white what's the gray is there another way of looking at this and sort of one of the advantages I think of doing this job is that it is my job to find different ways of looking at the same set of facts and Mm. that's what most most trials are is is two different ways of looking at the same set of facts and you're arguing for one or the other and um it's a really helpful skill when you're dealing with setbacks and criticism because you uh immediately or certainly I immediately go to the most negative and and what's the worst possible interpretation of this but then I get to put my lawyer hat on and think, OK, well, what's the evidence that suggests that might not be right? And um, what's another way of looking at that? So but I mean, that's that's the uh, that's the balanced way of doing it. But there are also times when, you know, if I lose an argument in front of a judge um, and then the next day I'm coming back to make my jury speech, there is something enormously empowering to me about being told no. I don't know why I think I don't know if this is a common thing or not, but it's part of my personality where if somebody says to me, you can't do that, I immediately think, yes, I can. How dare you? And um You use it as fuel. So, exactly. You, and in yeah. some ways, you know, having having that setback can be a real, you know, a real um a real catalyst, a real, really empowering moment that makes me think, well, I'll show all of you. And Sometimes I've I've used that, you know, I found myself using that or sort of twisting around the facts so that there is some imagined setback. So I've got something to push back against to really come out <laughs> fighting. Um, so I think, you know, as as with everything, it depends on the situation and on the circumstances. But I I definitely uh have used both of those skills at times or both of those um both of those responses to to try to gain some advantage from it the the balancing it out and the thinking about what other interpretations there are and how I can make this into a positive and then also sometimes just plain 
fighting back and are not going to accept this and you're wrong. And that's certainly been the case with some some of the episodes of sexism that I've experienced in my career, which I know, unfortunately, most women have. You know, there are times when it's really demoralising and it makes you think, well, maybe I'm in the wrong field. Maybe this isn't for me. And then there are times when you sort of you you sort of touch the bottom of the swimming pool and, you know, push yourself up and think, well, screw you. You know, I'm doing this anyway and I actually I'll show you. And it's so that can be a real motivator as well for me. Well, I like how you mentioned, like, again, normalising it for all our listeners that, you know, we all have those ups and downs. And sometimes, you know, yes. you, you you instantly feel that empowering <laughs> sense of I'm going to be fine. I'm going to fight back against this. But then, you know, you really openly admitted that other times, you know, you feel bad and you have those doubts and you sort of, you know, feel down for a bit before you then kick in your other great strategy you mentioned around challenging your self-talk and challenging your mindset. So I think it's really good hearing from people like you for everyone listening and going, you know what, we all have these setbacks, don't we? And it's about having strategies in our toolkit and which ones work for us and how can we kick them in when we need them. So thank you for sharing those. Now, final question, Harriet, you've had an amazing career and I know we could talk forever, but I'd love to know what are two of your practical tips or final words uh, for the you know women listening in or anyone listening in to help them accelerate their career and boost their success? Now, I know you've alluded to imposter syndrome a couple of times you know, but what do you want to share? What would be your top two tips or things that just for the women to feel empowered and inspired and to help them build a successful and fulfilling career on their own terms? So I think the the major one um, is authenticity. And that um, that can feel counterintuitive. And it especially if you're, um, as I am in a field that is still fairly male dominated, the temptation to um, to fit in is well can be overwhelming because if you're already feeling like you're sticking out like a sore thumb the last thing you want to do is challenge the culture but actually your authenticity your um your you that unique part of you that little sort of glowing light between your rib cage that is who you fundamentally are is the same light that somebody else is looking for and is the same set of skills and set of characteristics that somebody else is looking for. And I spent a long time at the very beginning of my career um, feeling like um, I I had to show that even though I'm a woman, I'm still interested in, you know, these financial cases and I can still deal with this sort of violence and I, you know, I can, I can cope with all of those things. Um, but actually a huge strength that I have is the ability to empathize with my clients. And that comes from, you know, the, my own sort of trauma and my own grief that's happened in my own life, which I thought for a long time would make me maybe not as good at this job. But it's a reason that so many of my clients um, come back to me and refer other people to me is because when they've been through this horrific trauma, they don't need a lawyer who's going to sit down and say, well, come on, love, you were wearing a short skirt or whatever. They benefit from a lawyer who can empathise with how they're feeling, even if I'm not able to completely understand everything. I know at least that I'm not going to make that trauma worse and that my ability to empathise is one of the things that actually can help can help with clients and also it can really really help with juries and with tribunals because when you're able to empathize you're able to properly convey how somebody feels to another person and Mm. that is a 
tremendous advantage but it was something that I felt pressure to sort of to to quash or to hide about myself when I first started out in this career and yet actually it's 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 so much better and so much healthier living in an authentic way and living without that cognitive dissonance of of trying to mm. uh, shape yourself into something else so you know for personal well-being it's much much better but it's also just so so much better for what you're actually selling because um you know trying to fake authenticity is a bit of an uphill battle <laughs> and yeah. uh, people can and, tell right yeah exactly whereas if you're if you're doing what is really important to you and if you're doing it in a way that feels authentic and that is authentic to to your values and to what really matters to you um then that i think is is something that people do consistently come back to so it 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 works on so so many fronts it works for well-being and for happiness and for mm. personal success and it also works for actually actively building a practice and building a career because it's it's what people are looking for well i love that authenticity what a great point to end our, our discussion on today but look in conclusion Harriet thank you just so much for being on the podcast for all the amazing work you do to help end discrimination and violence against women I've so enjoyed speaking with you and I'll promote your book and your links through all my social <laughs> media channels so people can find out more and download your book um, and I really look forward to staying in touch so thanks so much for being on the show no thank you so much for having me it's been really lovely thank you Jonah. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Psychology of Successful Women book or the Career Acceleration Program, you can head to shonarowan.com. We can also access a bunch of other free resources. See you on the next episode.